and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and we have a wonderful show for you this afternoon. Uh, Before we get started, I'd like to remind everyone that our call-in number um, is available in case you're listening and you'd like to call in and and join the show. You can do so by dialing 888-329-3306. That's 888 329-3306. In addition, be sure to follow us on social media, on Twitter at Women to Watch Talk, and on Instagram and Facebook, we are at Women to Watch Media. Lastly, uh, for all things related to the show, you can always find us at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. So first up today, we have our very own ongoing financial contributor, Kristen Hillsley. And Kristen is with the Foley-Hillsley Group uh, just outside of Philadelphia here um, with Baird Financial. And she's going to be discussing kind of the best practices for talking to our parents today about finances, which is uh, always kind of a, a sensitive area to, um, to go into. So um, happy to have her today. Kristen, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Sue. It's great to be here. Good to hear from you. Did you have a nice Mother's Day? You know what? It was actually the best Mother's Day I've ever had. It was absolutely wonderful. Thank oh, you. Did something special happen or just the you age know of what? the kids? It, it was, um, we had a wonderful event um, on Saturday night for a nonprofit called Preserving the Love at the Hilton in uh, Columbus Boulevard. And my husband and I stayed over the night there. And then the next morning, we ended up taking a long walk through the Italian market and picked up a lot of goodies and then had my mom over um, later that day with these wonderful things that we had picked up. And we just really got to enjoy the day. And it was so relaxing and a beautiful afternoon. So it was wonderful. How about you? Well, you know what? We were downtown as well. I went down um, to visit my son and had a, a wonderful surprise visit from my daughter who, who took the bus in from New York. And um, they were lying to me all week telling me she couldn't come. So it was a nice oh. surprise. And it was a beautiful day. Oh, my gosh, day. that's great. Yeah, it was a beautiful day. So, all right, let's get into this. This is such an important topic. And um, I would say, you know, when I think about Myself and my colleagues and my friends, we're all kind of at an age where we, we really need to start thinking about um, finances and our parents, and it's it's kind of interesting sometimes the roles reverse. So I know you have some great advice for this and that there's basically three stages um, that we mm-hmm. can focus on. So tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that. Well, when when 
when we're looking at talking to our parents about money, it's often an, uh, a, an interesting dialogue because it might be ground that you've never co covered with your parents before. In some instances, families are very open in talking about money. In some instances, the exact opposite is true. And so the first thing that we suggest is to try and start early if you can. So the three stages are stage one is when your parents, when there's no cognitive or physical decline present, when they're healthy, they're happy, you can talk to them truly really about what their wishes are with no imminent crisis or uh, trying to make a decision under stress. Um, the second stage is, you know, what do we do? How do we talk to our parents when they are starting to show signs that they need more help? Because that can be a little bit trickier. And then the last stage is when, you know, what do we do when they need full-time, round-the-clock care? Um, but for stage one, let's start there, um, where you're just starting the conversation. And really open and early communication is the best. Um, as I said, it can be a difficult conversation, um, but one thing that you can do, one idea, is that you can take a personal approach um, by using yourself a little bit as a guinea pig. So, for example, you might say to your parents, well, mom, dad, I'm sitting down with my financial advisor or a state planner next month, and we'd really appreciate learning more about how you address some of these issues. And then just pause, and, and, and that's a great thing to do. Just pause and let them talk. And you'll be able to gauge from that moment you know, whether um, they're comfortable or maybe you need to back off and try again. Um, and then for families that are a little bit more open, you can start by asking them just some simple questions about, you know, hey, mom, dad, um, are you going to be here? For, are, are you, you going to want to stay in your family home forever? Or, you know, some parents just want to get out. They want everything on one floor. They want to go to a 55 and older community where they have people that they can, you know, relate to and activities and amenities and things like that. Um, so you want to know whether they want to stay in the family home or move on. And then you also need to ask the question, well, what, what you know, what if you do need help? What if you can't? you know, get dressed on your own or you need help with meal preparations? Do you want to stay in the home? Do you want to go live with a sibling? Uh, would you ever consider a nursing home or a, an assisted living facility? Um, another really important question that you want to try and ask is if they have long-term care insurance. Because trust me, I have seen um, retirement plans just blow up if, if there is some kind of catastrophic health issue and you need assisted living and um, it, it's very, very expensive. So that's an important thing. And then you would just want to try and understand if they have a will or if they have an estate plan or who's their power of attorney because all of these things, if you find out in crisis, can be very damaging to families because everybody wants the best for mom and dad. Um, but it's easiest to deliver that when you know from mom and dad what the best thing is. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because it's really a subject that it's so important and it's kind of the inevitable for all of us, right? But yet mm -hmm. um, it's so very difficult to talk about sometimes. And I think that phase one that you mentioned is probably the most important because it's it's finding the information that you need as a child um, to really be prepared and ready for anything that happens. You know, those questions about their long-term insurance and how they've managed investments and, you know, do they even have a will um, mm -hmm. or an estate plan. Are there any other questions that are key to asking that will help just kind of open up the dialogue so that it's not 
uncomfortable that you have found? I don't know how comfortable or not comfortable it might be, but um, there's two things that I would suggest. One is uh, if they're open to it, it is wonderful for you to identify who their advisors are and to maybe even meet with their advisors with them. So who is their financial advisor? Who is their estate planning attorney or their banker or their accountant? And if you can meet with those people, you're developing a level of trust with their advisors. And, you know, the, the advisors are developing a level of trust with you because it goes both ways. So we try and meet with our children, adult children of our clients, because, you know, it's so important to protect our clients because it is their money, but we want to make sure that everything is going according to plan. And it's really good to establish that kind of a relationship early on if you can. Um, The other thing that we advise people to do is um, to try and get a sense of your parents' full financial picture. Now, if they're open to the communication, um, we and you don't have to use ours, but there's lots of them out there, but we have a personal information guide, which you can access um, on our website, which is fhbaird.com, but it's a personal information guide, and it's a comprehensive inventory of things like where their investment accounts are, uh, where their mortgage is held or any other debt, what insurance policies they have. Um, you, you may even want to go as far as to finding the account numbers and their online passwords. Um, because, and it may seem overwhelming and intrusive now, but, but if your parents aren't really comfortable sharing all of that, at least have them fill out this guide or something like it and tell you where it is. So that, God forbid, something is going to happen, you would be able to find it. And, and again, it's, it's all, in the end, it's all about making sure their wishes are carried out. Right. That's, that's, that's exactly right. Um, that's all great, great information and a great starting point for um, a lot of our listeners. Kristen, I, I appreciate it. Um, can you give out your contact information real quick in case someone's listening and wants to be in touch with you? Sure, absolutely. Um, you can always um, visit our website, which again is FH for Foley Hillsley Baird, B A I R D dot com. So it's FH Baird dot com. You can always call us at 610-238-6636. And we have a great uh, white paper on our website called Talking to Your Parents About Their Finances, which goes into a lot more depth about those later stages in life as well, um, where things can get a little trickier. Yeah, terrific. And we'll we'll be sure to share that um, via our social media. Thank you, Sue. Okay, thank you, Kristen. Have a great week. You too. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now I'd love to uh, to bring on our very special guest this afternoon. Uh, we have with us, and I believe she's calling from California, uh, her name is Aura Nadrick, and Aura is a life coach, um, a meditation teacher, and the author of a very uh, successful and wonderful book called Says Who. Aura, welcome to the show. Hi, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Great to have you. Are you calling from California? I am. I'm calling from Los Angeles. Okay. And how is it there today? 
It's beautiful. As always. I I don't know if I should always say that, especially to those (laughs) who are in in places where maybe it's not so sunny, but it is beautiful. Good, good. Thank you. Listen, you know, um, you and I spoke a couple of months ago, I guess, about your work and your book, and I've been so looking forward to this show uh, because, as you know, I'm – just very much interested in, and fascinated with um, not only your life story and the work that you do, but a lot of the things that you've learned that uh, really help people uh, to heal, I'll say. And um, I want to start out, uh, as we always do with your growing up years, and kind of describe, um, as you did in the book, that you you grew up with a fairly idyllic childhood until the age of 14, um, so I'd love to start there and have you talk uh, and and tell our listeners what exactly happened um, at the age of 14. Well, I did. I grew up in a very happy household. I'm one of four. I'm the youngest of four. And oftentimes, even when I ran into friends many years later from childhood, they would say, oh, Aura, I, I always wanted to grow up in your house. You know, it was always so warm and, you know, you have these beautiful sisters and an older brother and it was just always so warm and inviting in your home and that's really how I grew up you know I would describe it as very warm and very welcoming and when I was you know almost 15 years old I had a very devastating experience it was very traumatic and that was that my sister who I just adored and idolized I have two older sisters uh, my one sister had a nervous breakdown And it was just shocking and, as I said, devastating for all of us. I think for me, um, being the youngest, I really went into deep trauma over it. It was just something I completely couldn't understand. And uh, there was my sister who, you know, as I said, I adored and, and idolized in so many ways, who seemed fine one day and then one day was never fine again. So I went into what I describe in the book as I went into fight or flight. Mm. And when we go into fight or flight, we go into a complete fear state. We feel that our survival is threatened, and that's what happened to me. And uh, when that happened, I told myself one thought in particular that really came to the foreground of my mind, and that was, oh, my God, this is going to happen to me. Mm. So that's really the backstory of, what had happened in my, you know, childhood, really, if yeah. you will. Can I ask you, Did you was there a discussion within the family around what was happening? Did your parents talk, or were they just, um, you know, consumed with uh, caring for your sister? Yes, of course. You know, everybody came to the aid of my sister, and rightfully so. I mean, she was in crisis. Mm-hmm. She was in deep, serious crisis. And my parents and us collectively as a family, meaning we all came together to be able to understand this situation better and then, of course, to help guide her to get the best help possible. But I do think, you know, without not neglect, you know, or anything like that, because my parents were great, but that the focus and the attention was on her. Mm-hmm. You know, as I said, she was in complete crisis. So... I was absorbing all of this trauma, and I was handling it to the best of my abilities. And what I was doing, really, is I was internalizing right. what I was experiencing. I wasn't expressing it verbally. Mm-hmm. I wasn't 
saying, hey, guys, look over here. I'm really in duress. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand what I was experiencing, and I talk about that a lot in the book. Yeah. I think that's so very common for children to, you know, they're processing whatever's going on, and and, um, our parents, they don't see it. They, They were too young to articulate it. Um, and so if it goes left um, unaddressed, you know, as we'll talk about, you know, more in the show, you know, you start to form these messages and, and ideas in your own mind. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's a great reminder to parents, as parents, to always be having that dialogue to make sure, um, especially when there's a crisis, that the ones not involved, you know, uh, have a, an outlet, someplace to talk about it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That's a good point. Um, I, I want to read this quote, something that you said. Um, Salvation and escape came through my imaginary world where I felt most comfortable acting. So um, eventually you, you did go into acting, and um, you had a very successful career. I was wondering if, if you knew at the time when you were acting, at the very beginning, um, that that was an escape for you from from the anxiety and the fear, or did you learn that later? Well, I went into acting. I mean, I knew I wanted to be an actress at a very young age, way before that happened with my sister. So I didn't choose acting to escape what I was experiencing. I just ultimately began acting, and it wasn't until I was acting that, yes, of course, being able to express my creativity even though this was uh, such a serious situation at home, I wasn't thinking about it really when I was acting. Yes, it was a form of uh, escape, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it was a form of me being able to express myself in a environment that really, you know, I derived great pleasure from. Mm-hmm. So it really was very helpful for me to have a creative outlet because underneath the surface, which again I go deeply into the book about, a lot of stirrings and percolation mm-hmm. was going on underneath the surface, even while I was acting, and I didn't know it until obviously things really started to culminate, which formed the basis of my my journey. Right. So you know, you um, you had your first big break as an actress um, in Altered States with William Hurt. And um, as you described, really kind of launched you into the, you know, Hollywood social scene. And we all, any of us who are not in that, you know, picture that in our mind, um, you know, what kind of is taking place there. And interestingly, though, as the fame began to grow for you, um, rather than really celebrating that and feeling the joy, that is when you you started to, uh, you know, this anxiety and, and fear manifested itself. When people, uh, fans were writing to you and reaching out to you, um, t- can you talk about how, how did that manifest itself? Well, yes. You know, my career started to take off pretty quickly, and I think that I psychologically wasn't prepared for it. I didn't know it again at the time. There's so much I didn't know. You know, that's why it's so important to really know what's going on with us because, you know, I was young, and there was so much that was just unknown to me at the time. I didn't have the resources. I didn't know about going within and exploring more of a psychological approach to what I was experiencing. So outwardly, it seemed like everything was fine. I had this very exciting uh, career and lifestyle. 
Um, I loved what I was doing. It was all on the surface, again, very appealing. Um, you, you'd look at my life at the time and think, wow, she's just got it all going on. Isn't mm-hmm. that great? Right. And it was that way. It was, you know. But, again, what started to happen is that what was underneath the surface, which was related to that trauma because of what happened to my sister and how I received it and how I uh, was affected by it started to seep into my day-to-day life and it started to affect it and it actually started to impact the quality of my life. Mm. Um, so I guess that was the point where you started to um, to, to, to more self-reflect. Um, I, I would say you probably were always someone who was seeking um answers and kind of um, the truth about who you are. And uh, one of the first steps you took in the healing process and in exploring and and learning was through cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, CBT. Can you tell us what that is and how it helped you? Well, when I said that I started to have these feelings and these stirrings is what started to manifest for me during the time when I was acting, by the way, was anxiety. And I really was starting to suffer because of it. And I didn't know why I was experiencing this anxiety. So I knew I needed help. And I, you know, yes, as somebody who uh, was a seeker and wanted to know more about who I am, my sister's illness really even pushed me farther out into now I had a need to know, you know. And so what I reached out for uh, with cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, was that when it was presented to me that I knew I you know, could benefit from help and maybe CBT would be the answer, was that it was a way to be able to connect what was behind my thoughts. You know, it basically takes you into questioning what you're experiencing and what you're thinking so that you can connect it to something specific that makes sense for you and that you can have some kind of breakthrough. And it was really wonderful to learn that, but at the time it was like it was almost like a little bit wasted on me timing-wise because I didn't know what the thought was. It's very valuable when you really have a thought that's just got such a grip and such a hold on you. I didn't know my thought, which was the fear that I was going to go crazy like my sister, but what I was experiencing was the feeling state of it. Mm -hmm. So what CBT did to help me, though, is that it helped me understand that you could actually make some type of connection. And that was illuminating, like, oh, okay, I need to go deeper into this journey, but there's a way to connect the dots here. Mm-hmm. I haven't I haven't reached them yet, but I have faith that I will. Yeah. So CBT really opened that door for me. Yeah, yeah. I would I imagine that's a that's a really wonderful experience just to know that there is a connection and a reason for the thought, even though you're not able to let go of it yet. Right, exactly. Yeah. I had a much longer journey to go on, and I didn't get the answers right away. It took me on a very extensive psycho-spiritual journey, mm-hmm. but CBT was an integral part of really putting me on the right track. Right. Well, that's what I find so interesting is, is all the different, you know, you just were so, I'll say, persistent in your pursuit to to learn and know and get to a state of feeling, uh, you know, healthy and, and that, that well-being. So, 
uh, first of all, what how, what year was that that you were using the CBT? How old were you? Oh my gosh, I was in my twenties. Okay, You're still yeah, in your twenties. Yeah, I was my my. You know, in my 20s was a tremendous amount of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I went on a, I'd say I went on a very deep psycho-spiritual journey in, the, in my 20s, and that's when I was acting, do you know? So I mm-hmm. was really doing both simultaneously. And then what happened was when what I call the side effects or the symptoms of what a thought produces, which was for me the anxiety, it kept pushing me further into wanting to discover what was behind this anxiety. So I spent a good part of my 20s, if not all of them, on this exploration. Would you say it helped you with your acting? You know, it did. Acting is very much a discovery unto itself because Mm -hmm. you really have to, you know, access parts of yourself as a you know, going into character as an actor, you have to obviously be very open and available mm-hmm. to be a channel, a vehicle for that character to embody a character that you're playing. You know, acting is a lot of work. Right. I have so much respect yeah. for actors having been one mm-hmm. because when you see those performances, boy, they really open themselves up to allowing themselves to access parts of the the well, the deep well within them so that they can bring this character to life. So I would say, yeah, it was helpful, you know, knowing yourself, going deeper, you know, investigating into the depths of who you are so helps you as an actor, for sure. So doing those things simultaneously, yeah, I was really getting to know myself very well. (laughs) Um, Well, so then um, you studied Buddhism. Um, tell me what you know. What that? What lessons you took uh, from studying that? Well, I, Buddhism was really um, it really resonated for me because it, you know, in its most simple form, is that you know, life has suffering. You know, that's like the number one, I think, tenet of Buddhism is like life has suffering, and we need to know that and we want to understand it and we need to accept it. We can't keep fighting it. We can't keep trying to swim upstream. And so for me, that was really helpful in like, yes, okay, now through Buddhism, how can I understand to live a more peaceful life, a more thoughtful life, a more mindful life by knowing that, yes, in fact, living in this body in this world is painful and can be of course it has wonderful joy and wonderful blessings but that the journey has all of it combined do you know and if we stop fighting it and start to allow for our growth then we can work with it so buddhism really resonated for me and the whole notion of compassion and kindness and whether that's certainly beginning with us to be kind and loving and compassionate to ourselves so therefore we can extend that outside of ourselves to others also really made sense for me so i found buddhism a, a great learning it was a wonderful way to get to know my um, my spirit better to get to know my nature or what's referred to as buddha nature which mm-hmm. is in all of us you know it's our higher wisdom self it's our true essence of who we are. Mm-hmm. And that was really lovely for me to explore. So helpful, so beautiful. Um, and also I was a meditator at that time. I had become a meditator. I had been doing transcendental meditation 
for a number of years. I started that very early in my 20s. So that combined Buddhism and meditation was extremely helpful for me. Yeah. So uh, eventually you discovered something called union union I'm sorry union uh, analysis it's a, it's, a, it's very it's hard a, to say it's <laughs> a tongue twister yes. Jungian Jungian analysis Jungian. It's, it's named after Carl Jung who was the Swiss psychiatrist psychoanalyst who who founded analytical psychology okay and I I did I feel as though I was completely blessed to discover that for myself because as I said I knew I needed help and to understand really why I was having anxiety and why I was suffering. So I made a commitment to go to where I needed to go to try to find the answers. And even with the different teachings and modalities and studying that I was learning, I knew I needed to go even deeper. And Jungian analysis was like the perfect fit for me mm. because, first of all, I'm a, I'm a big dreamer. My dream life, I don't mean dreaming, pie-in-the-sky dreaming. I mean like dreams when we sleep. I'm a big dreamer, and that's a great part of uh, Jungian analysis is to be able to interpret your dreams and what you're unconscious is trying to tell you so I think because I was going through so much at the time there was so much that I was experiencing be it in my waking states or my sleeping states that I needed help to understand and so I went into an analysis and it was incredibly helpful it sounds to me from what you said in the book that that was really a, a a turning point for you in understanding where a lot of these feelings were coming from. Um, you said, I needed a type of psychology that could help me understand who I was separate from my sister. Even though we were from the same biological family, I wanted to know who I was as a unique individual and find my healthy, authentic self. So that yeah. seemed, you know, when I read that, I thought, oh, good, you know, that was a place where you understood and maybe let go of a little bit more of the fear of it could happen to you because you were understanding yeah. that you were unique. You were, excuse that's me, exactly, unique. Right. That's exactly right, Susan. Um, that's what happened for me. I felt that I had found the container. I had found the safe place for me with an excellent therapist and with the workings of Carl Jung to understand you know, our fears, the shadow, which is oftentimes aspects of our psyche that are unknown to us, which can come out in sometimes depressing or what would be described as the darker aspects, which is really based in fear. And right. through Jungian analysis, I was able to go into all of those places to go deeper within myself, to start to really live the examined life, to not be afraid. I wanted the answers. And so that offered it up for me. It said, if you're going to do the work and you're going to go deep within yourself to go towards the very things that are frightening you, you will get answers, as difficult as it is. Do you know? It's, mm -hmm. You know, I can see why some people really are avoiding that. They right. don't want to go into the depths of themselves. But, mm. boy, I'll tell you, it's well worth it right. because you can be so liberated from the very things that cause you so much suffering. Right. Um, or listen, we're going to take a very quick break for our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to get right into uh, the book and uh, the work that you do with the, your clients and, and the people you help. We'll be right back.
This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to an- announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more. All available at womentowatch.net and our own website, foleyhillsleygroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at foleyhillsleygroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to foleyhillsleygroup.com to learn more. That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y group.com. Or call 610-238-6636. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. I'm pleased to announce the opening of the region's newest, most innovative gynecology practice in the Philadelphia area, Montgomery Gynecology. Led by Dr. Hima Janogada in a welcoming boutique-style setting, she and her team are committed to providing the highest standard of cutting-edge care without losing the personal touch that is so very important in today's world. With a particular interest in minimally invasive surgical options, Dr. Hema completed advanced training in robotic surgery and is one of only two surgeons in Montgomery County who performs this highly specialized single-site robotic surgery. For more information on the opening of this exciting new practice in the convenient Plymouth Meeting location, go to www.montgomerygyn.com or call 215-444-444. 3411. That's MontgomeryGYN.com or call 215-444-3411 to make an appointment today. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Women to Watch on WWDB Talk 860 and WomenToWatch.net. And I'm joined this afternoon by Aura Nadrick. Or is a life coach, meditation teacher, and author of Says Who. Um, and I'd love to get right into the book um, and, and talk about the method and how you um, developed it, Aura. And from what I understand, it, it kind of came from an aha moment that you had with a client um, 
after asking asking her a question. Is that right? Happened. I was with a life coaching client, and she was starting a new business. Very creative woman, and she came to me to talk about what I thought was, you know, just starting this business and some of her thoughts and concerns. And when we were in session together, she said, "You know, where I have this thought." And sometimes it comes up, and it just really just scares the life out of me. And it, when it happens, I just don't know what to do. And it's been coming up a lot lately. And I said, okay, do you want to talk about it? What is it? And she said to me, I'm afraid that I'm going to be homeless, that I'm going to be out on the streets, that I'm literally going to be penniless. And I listened to what she was sharing with me, and I found it really actually fascinating because I thought, well, here is this woman who's come to me to talk about her business, which is a very proactive desire that she has. And then here's this thought. It was like I was in the presence of someone with two minds working in conflict with each other. This other thought, which sounds like it wants, you know, it's a fear thought, and it sounds like it's going to really get in the way of what she wants to do. And as I was listening to her, I thought, I know that. I've been there. I know that. I know that fear thought. It's like a boogeyman thought is what I thought to myself when she said it to me. And I said, I've had one myself, so I understand. And then when she said it, I thought to myself, says who? Who has told her that she's going to be penniless and homeless and on the streets she must have gotten that somewhere Mm -hmm. that that thought has a story i just felt it intuitively strongly actually so i took a chance with her and i said that i said says who well it was like she suddenly looked like a deer in headlights like what do you mean i mean i said well let me ask you something And I took it one step farther. I said, have you ever heard someone say that before, that you're going to be homeless, that you're going to be penniless? Well, when I asked her that question, it just opened up something in her that was very shifting, if you will. And she got emotional. She got very teary-eyed. And she said, wow, I've never asked myself that before. I've never even connected this before. And she said, I grew up with a father that used to say that a lot. You know, money was scarce. There were times where he was in a job, out of a job, and he would come home and he would say that with total fear in this loud-toned voice. And she said, it would petrify me as a little girl. And I said, okay, that's interesting. So that was your father's fear thought, right? And she said, yeah, that." started with my father and I said okay so can you be with that for a minute that you have been carrying around with you for a very long time a fear that started with your father that actually belongs to your father and this was such a huge breakthrough for her that when we were finished with our session I knew I was on to something really important and that's how the says who method began I, I took that and I sat down and wrote a book yeah you know, it's interesting as you're describing that moment. I'm thinking, I wonder where that came from in him. You know, it's it's always right. interesting to think about to just continue to go back and see where yeah. these thoughts originate. 
Well, a lot of the time, Susan, they're carried down for a very long time. Yeah. That's why a lot of things generationally mm-hmm. are carried down sometimes from generation to generation or family to family, you know, where a lot of those become core beliefs. That's and right. that we've carried them down from our parents and their parents and their grandparents, and you have the opportunity to, to stop that chain, mm-hmm. if you will. Right. I recall reading in in the book that there seems to be a commonality among uh, your clients who are actually experiencing success and and forward progress and they're they're doing well, and yet they have these continued negative thoughts about where they're going to end up or what's actually going to happen. Um, Mm -hmm. How, you know, so how do you help them? What are... What are some? I think I believe there's seven questions um, within the method. There are there's right? seven. Sev, the, the says who method are seven questions to ask yourself when a negative or fear-based thought comes about in your mind, so that you can know what to do the second it starts to want to wreak havoc. I mm-hmm. say yes. in the book, and right. yeah, it's a method to use because what it really offers up is for people to understand their thoughts better, to not just accept their negative thoughts so readily, which is what we're often prone to do. We're often prone to just tell ourselves something really negative and not challenge it and not question it. Just like when I asked her those questions, she said to me, I never thought of it that way. I never even asked myself where that came from. I just knew that I had this thought in my mind, and it would scare me. So how important and helpful it is, again, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, cognitively to connect the dots so that you can be able to really discern between something that is real and something that is not. That's right. So here's um, another quote um, that you said is, is, it's one thing to think a positive thought, but it's a lot more challenging to keep your thoughts that way. So... Right. Right. How do we, um, you know, when when people work with you and and they they find success in those moments of, you know, there they go, the the negative thoughts are coming in and they ask the questions and they're able to kind of move out of that moment. Do let me ask you this: Do you believe there's a way to prevent those negative thoughts from ever coming? Well, here's the thing. You know, I didn't write a quick fix self-help book where you're just going to read it and go, oh, great, I'm never going to think a negative thought again. Mm -hmm. That's not realistic. We think between 40 and 70,000 thoughts a day. We've got very busy minds, and not all those thoughts serve our well-being. As a matter of fact, some of them are very detrimental to our well-being. And so we need to be on to that. We need to have an awareness of what our thoughts are about. And that's really the very beginnings of the Says Who Method. I talk about being an observer of your thinking mind. When you have that information, when you know that, oh, a negative thought comes in, ah, okay, noting it to self, oh, this negative thought, huh, I'm really plugged in right now. You know, and the Says Who Method, you know, which we can go through if you'd like, are questions to ask that thought before you get swept up and taken over by a negative thought and you go into what I call reactive mode mm, because right. we're so quick to, A, accept the thought, and we're so quick to react to the thought and not at all aware of the fact that we can change that thought and transform it into something that is going to not have a negative effect on us but a positive effect on us. 
You know, it's just a matter of learning how to do that. It's a skill, right? Basically, it's a skill that each and every one of us can have. Can you can you quickly go through the the seven questions? Sure. Just so, to give us an idea. Yes, of course. Well, again, Susan, beginning with being the observer, and what that really means is that you're, it's as if you're the witness of yourself, that like you're, you, there's another Susan standing next to you watching Susan or another Aura standing next to me watching Aura, that if I suddenly got into very reactive mode, the observer would go, oh, you're really plugged in right now, or look at her, she's really upset. So try and be the observer when you are working with your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I say begin with the very first question, says who? That's a very important question to ask yourself because what that means is that you're willing to own that thought. You know, oftentimes we want to push a thought away. We want to set it aside. We want to deflect it. We want to bury it. We want to deny it. We want to pretend that we're not having it. I say bring it on. Right. You know, I do something even called the says who meditation where I encourage you to bring a thought forward so that you can do the method with it. Says who, first question, who is saying this thought in my mind? I am. I am owning this thought. I am telling myself I'm not good enough, I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough. I'm ready to really own it and to work with it. Second question is, which is what I ended up asking my client, have I heard someone say this thought before? So important because so many of the negative thoughts began very long ago, oftentimes in childhood, said by a parent, an authority figure, a teacher, the bully on the schoolyard. Mm. We were young. Mm-hmm. Something was said to us. We didn't feel that we were okay or good enough. We took it in. We stored it. And it became a belief right. about ourselves. And I work with so many clients that share with me kind of what she did, a thought or an opinion or belief that they have about themselves that's either really negative or really frightening, and it started long ago with someone else. Very important to identify that it might not even have started with you. Mm -hmm. Um, Third question, you know, one of my favorites, very straightforward, very no-brainer. These questions sound very simple, which they are, but they really hold deep, you know, meaning when you get to the bottom of them. Do I like this thought? Really, what is it about your negative thought that you like? I mean, can you really answer that and say, hey, you know what I like about my negative thought? That it makes me feel bad. (laughs) It makes me feel really crummy or makes me feel really low self-esteem. So when you ask these questions, they're very logical and they really shine a light on how illogical some of the thoughts that we tell ourselves are. The fourth question, again, very straightforward, does this thought make me feel better? What is it about your negative thought that makes you feel better? How does it make you feel better? Does it put you in a good mood? Does it make you come off as a, you know, happy-go-lucky, cheerful person? Does it create good energy that people want to be around you? You know, what is it that, you know, that you can really say about it that in fact makes you feel better? You know, I think negative thoughts make us feel not so good and positive thoughts make us feel better. Do you? I'm just curious if you find working with people that their inability to let them go sometimes is just because they're comfortable with it. It's been a part of them. They're used to it. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course. You know, we can hold on to 
many things, many thoughts, many bad habits, you know, a, a negative thought can have as much of a detrimental effect on you for different reasons as smoking. You know, I mean, there are things that we put in and keep into ourselves that are not healthy for us. So, yeah, it, those are habits sometimes to, you know, it can be perceived as difficult to break. But if you're really on board to change, which if you're picking up my book and you're even going to ask yourself that very first question, says who, you're ready. You're mm-hmm. ready to change it up. Yes. You might not have all the answers right away, but what I say about the says who method is if you commit to it, it will commit to you. Your thinking will change. You will find a real transformation happen with your thinking process, and right. it's great. Yeah. So what's question number five? Question number five, does this thought work for me? Again, how is your negative thought working for you? Is it helping your relationship? Is it helping you get your work done better? Is it helping your relationship with your partner or your children? How is that negative thought working for you? Mm-hmm. You know, you're pretty hard put to answer these questions, and it's very revealing really how much we accept Mm. and how little we get from it ultimately right do you know Mm -hmm. and the sixth question am i in control of this thought well so many people will say to me you know aura i feel so taken over by a negative thought that i feel like i'm absolutely not in control of it and that is how we feel but the truth is we are creating these thoughts so therefore we have control over them if we want to believe that or if we're giving our power away to our own thinking mind, to our own negative thoughts, it's going to feel like we're being taken over by our own mind. It doesn't make much sense. I say it's, there's not some little person crawling inside your head right. telling you what to think. <laughs> right. You know? Yes, right. And right. Matter. So it's taking your power back from the power that you've given to your mind. It's like separating yourself from your own thinking ability. Mm-hmm. Again, to me, it's very illogical, and I want people to understand the logic in this. Uh, the, the final question, the seventh question, do I want to keep this thought or let it go? I say to people that um, when you've identified that negative thought and maybe perhaps discovered that it really doesn't belong to you, you really recognize that you don't like that thought. Uh, it doesn't make you feel better. There's nothing about it that works for you. You're sick and tired of feeling like it's controlling you. By the time you get to that seventh question, do I want to keep this thought or let it go, I think you're going to answer it with a pretty definitive yes. Mm. Yes, I am ready to let this thought go. Yeah. it's it, it's It makes so much sense. That, you know, and I love the fact that you said they're kind of um, – you know, questions that, that seem very much common sense questions to ask, but they force you to to look at your thoughts a different way, and they kind of lead you to where ultimately we all want to let go of the negative messaging and, and thoughts. So, um, right. Yeah. And, and also to know what to do when it comes up, because I want people to know that negative thoughts will keep coming up. That's but right. But you can know what to do, how to circumvent them yeah. and how to transform them instead of an I can't and I'll never and I'm not good at, Mm -hmm. to switch it out to yes, I can, yes, I will, I will become better at this, I am worthy. You know, you switch it out 
so that your your positive thoughts are what become the affirmations that you carry with you out into your day. Right. You know, I'm curious. I know you don't work specifically with women, and, and I was wondering if you find that women are more likely to go on these self-discovery journeys than men. Well, you know, I work with uh, both men and women. I had a women's group for several years, which was just so wonderful, and I'm I'm thinking about maybe doing it again. You know, of course, we can say, yes, women are easily or more connected to their emotions and to what they're feeling, and therefore they can, you know, be more comfortable with exploring it or going in there deeper. I believe men are too, but I think that men don't immediately go to that place in the way women do. I mean, I think men can compartmentalize in ways that maybe we might not do so easily, and maybe that's just a good thing. You know, men can maybe get their work done, and if something is upsetting them, they can, you know, maybe not deal with it in the same way or with such emotional intensity mm, that we right. have. But what I'm finding, especially as a mindfulness teacher, that more and more men are wanting to connect or wanting to go to a place within themselves that they can access more I... readily that helps them grow and evolve as, as men. Yes. You know, and as much needed as it anybody is. else. Well, uh, yes, I, I'm glad to hear that. I, I just think culturally they have felt they don't have permission to do that. Maybe I'll say it like that. So, uh, right. right, I think that that yes, I do agree with you on that. And I think, again, because of the mindfulness meditation and more and more men are really comfortable going to meditation. And, you know, with meditation, you are with your thoughts, mm-hmm. you know, and thoughts, create feelings, create behavior, create reality, you know. It's a scary place. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's a scary place. And I think that it's how you present it. I think, you know, I there's that remember that thing about how women, you know, well how are you feeling? Or what do you feel about that? You know, something that maybe women would be inclined to ask men and they can look at women like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> I have no feelings. I don't know, even know what that means. <laughs> right. You know, that they're going to feel therapized or right. analyzed or yes, something. Yes. You know, let's get in touch with your feelings. Right. What's really going on in there? Yeah. Well, you know what? Interestingly, you, you, uh, you're married and you have two boys. I, you know, I, I am. Yeah, I'd love to know. You know, Do they use the method? Or are they practicing it successfully? Do they talk to you openly about well, it? Well, they have a mom that very much goes to those places right. where, you know, I talk about real feelings and I talk about emotions. And I, they know that's who I am and that's what I do with my work. So they've been around it for a very long time since they were babies. And, you know, my conversations with them are very real. And I'm all about keeping it real you know, try and find ways to keep it real. Find ways that you can share your thoughts and, you know, that not to feel that you have to hold those thoughts so inside yourself that you can't shine light on them, mm-hmm. whether you're doing the says who method or you're just reaching out to someone and saying, you know, I have this thought kind of like what, you know, my clients do with me, that I want my boys to feel comfortable. They're the young men now, mm-hmm. you know, that it's okay to go in there and talk about what you're experiencing and what you're feeling. So I, they've definitely had good preparation for that with me, yeah. for sure. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, I think, you know, I love that, that, you know, to go around pretending um, that we don't have 
feelings and fears and anxieties is, you know, it's just silly. It doesn't benefit anyone. Um, no, no, it doesn't. Um, you know what? You've had an opportunity to to meet some very um, interesting and wonderful spiritual leaders, including the Dalai Lama. Um, is there something yeah. that here? Is there something you've the the ones that you have met? Was there something in common? Something that they all shared? Perhaps kind of you know a sense of of calm or peace. Uh, yes, I mean, you know, obviously it was such an honor to meet the Dalai Lama. He's an extraordinary, extraordinary human being, and uh, the work that he does and what he, you know, shares with the world is a gift to all of us. You know, here's a man with his people, you know, that have suffered tremendously, you know, experiencing displacement, and listening to him and his laughter and his wisdom and you know, really helping you understand that you can transcend the very things that caused you tremendous suffering. I mean, I created this method, which I hope help people transcend, you know, all of the people that I have had the good fortune of meeting, or even all the people that I've read their books, or even Jungian analysis, has helped me understand myself better, and to know that, yes, life has its difficulties, and it is a journey for sure. And there's going to be bumpy roads and there's going to be suffering. But when you really commit to the journey in a way that is open and allow yourself to come to know yourself better and not live in fear, you will open yourself up like a lotus flower. You will mm-hmm. keep opening and opening and opening and learn how to handle the difficulties better, even the suffering, and have a deeper understanding of what this life is about and that it's a gift for all of us. That's such a wonderful point that I think, you know, we'll always be learning and we should always be opening to learning. And so to to read, first of all, I loved your book and and it, you know, I had a lot of aha moments myself while reading it. And um, but it does. It's not like it will fix something, and you will be permanently, you know, um, walking around happy. But when things happen out of our control, we have better tools then to to work we through do. it, right? Yeah. We do. Yes, exactly. There are tools. There are methods. There are skill sets to put into place so yeah. that you don't feel so alone right. in your process. Right. right. Or we're at the end of the show. I thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I really enjoyed oh, it. And Thank uh, you so much for having me, Susan. Yeah, we'll be sharing your book and your contact information uh, with our audience. Thank you again. Thank you. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Have a great week. <laughs>